0: Section 13 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 9. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 9 section thirteen selected works by lord chesterfield sixteen ninety four to seventeen seventy three as the best representative of a creditable type among english noblemen in the reign of george the second an accomplished courtier a diplomatic statesman worthy of reliance on occasions of emergency a scholar and a patron of literature philip dormer stanhope fourth earl of chesterfield occupied a prominent place in the history of his country for more than forty years he was the eldest son of philip third earl and was born at london in sixteen ninety four most of his boyhood was spent under the care of his grandmother the marchioness of halifax when eighteen he was entered at trinity college cambridge and became an excellent classical scholar the principal events in his public career were his election to parliament in his twenty-first year his appointment as captain of the yeoman of the guard in return for a political vote his selection for special service as ambassador to the hague after his succession to the family title his appointment as lord high steward with the garter as a reward for his success in holland his expulsion from that position by horace walpole for political disobedience in opposing an excise bill his second successful mission to the hague his selection as a reward for the responsible post of viceroy in ireland and subsequently his resignation and acceptance of office as secretary of state this latter appointment being taken when the earl had reached his fiftieth year chesterfield was first a warm friend then a bitter enemy of horace walpole he also antagonized george the second but that monarch finally succumbed to diplomatic treatment at his hands and offered his former antagonist a dukedom which was courteously declined in his fifty-eighth year partial deafness caused him to withdraw almost wholly from public affairs in diplomacy his successful missions to the hague made him strong with officials in power his ability as a statesman was shown to great advantage in a firm yet popular administration of irish affairs during a critical period in irish history as a patron of literature dr samuel johnson deemed him a distinct failure and expressed this opinion forcibly to that effect in his celebrated letter his literary reputation rests chiefly on letters addressed to his natural son philip who died in his thirty-sixth year greatly to his father's disappointment he having looked forward to a great career for the young man his letters of counsel and advice were to that end oddly they left the recipient still shy awkward tactless and immature these epistles not intended for public perusal were subsequently printed in book form the earl of chesterfield died in seventeen seventy three four years after his death miscellaneous works were published in two volumes also characters the art of pleasing and letters to his heir appeared ten years from the date of his decease and this was followed a few months later by Memoirs of Asiaticus. From Letters to His Son Concerning Manners There is a bien with regard to people of the lowest degree. A gentleman observes it with his footman, even with the beggar in the street. He considers them as objects of compassion, not of insult. He speaks to neither d'un Tonbrusque but corrects the one coolly and refuses the other with humanity there is no one occasion in the world in which le ton brusque is becoming a gentleman in short les bienséances are another word for manners and extend to every part of life they are propriety the graces should attend in order to complete them The graces enable us to do, genteelly and pleasingly, what lesbienne sciences require to be done at all. The latter are an obligation upon every man. The former are an infinite advantage and ornament to any man. THE CONTROL OF ONE'S COUNTENANCE People unused to the world have babbling countenances and are unskilful enough to show what they have sense enough not to tell in the course of the world a man must very often put on an easy frank countenance upon very disagreeable occasions he must seem pleased when he is very much otherwise he must be able to accost and receive with smiles those whom he would much rather meet with swords in courts he must not turn himself inside out all this may nay must be done without falsehood and treachery for it must go no further than politeness and manners and must stop short of assurances and professions of simulated friendship good manners to those one does not love are no more a breach of truth than your humble servant at the bottom of a challenge is they are universally agreed upon and understood to be things of course they are necessary guards of the decency and peace of society they must only act defensively and then not with arms poisoned with perfidy truth but not the whole truth must be the invariable principle of every man who hath either religion honour or prudence dress as an index to character i cannot help forming some opinion of a man's sense and character from his dress and i believe most people do as well as myself any affectation whatsoever in dress implies in my mind a flaw in the understanding a man of sense carefully avoids any particular character in his dress he is accurately clean for his own sake but all the rest is for other people's he dresses as well and in the same manner as the people of sense and fashion of the place where he is if he dresses better as he thinks that is more than they he is a fop. If he dresses worse he is unpardonably negligent, but of the two I would rather have a young fellow too much than too little dressed. The excess on that side will wear off with a little age and reflection, but if he is negligent at twenty he will be a sloven at forty and stink at fifty years old. Dress yourself fine where others are fine and plain where others are plain but take care always that your clothes are well made and fit you for otherwise they will give you a very awkward air when you are once well dressed for the day think no more of it afterwards and without any stiffness or fear of discomposing that dress let all your motions be as easy and natural as if you had no clothes on at all some remarks on good breeding a friend of yours and mine has justly defined good breeding to be the result of much good sense some good nature and a little self-denial for the sake of others and with a view to obtain the same indulgence from them taking this for granted as i think it cannot be disputed it is astonishing to me that anybody who had good sense and good nature and i believe you have both can essentially fail in good breeding as to the modes of it indeed they vary according to persons places and circumstances and are only to be acquired by observation and experience but the substance of it is everywhere and eternally the same good manners are to particular societies what good morals are to society in general their cement and their security and as laws are enacted to enforce good morals or at least to prevent the ill effects of bad ones so there are certain rules of civility universally implied and received to enforce good manners and punish bad ones and indeed there seems to me to be less difference both between the crimes and punishments than at first one would imagine mutual complacences attentions and sacrifices of little conveniences are as natural an implied compact between civilized people as protection and obedience are between kings and subjects whoever in either case violates that compact justly forfeits all advantages arising from it for my own part i really think that next to the consciousness of doing a good action that of doing a civil one is the most pleasing and the epithet which i should covet the most next to that of aristides would be that of well-bred the choice of a vocation from miscellaneous works it is very certain that no man is fit for everything but it is almost as certain too that there is scarce any one man who is not fit for something which something nature plainly points out to him by giving him a tendency and propensity to it i look upon common sense to be to the mind what conscience is to the heart the faithful and constant monitor of what is right or wrong and i am convinced that no man commits either a crime or a folly but against the manifest and sensible representation of the one or the other every man finds in himself either from nature or education for they are hard to distinguish a peculiar bent and disposition to some particular character and his struggling against it is the fruitless and endless labour of sisyphus let him follow and cultivate that vocation he will succeed in it and be considerable in one way at least whereas if he departs from it he will at best be inconsiderable probably ridiculous end of section thirteen